if you would, please open your Bibles to our passage for today, which is Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. Again, that's Matthew 17, 1 to 13. And let's go ahead and begin our time today by reading the passage together. Matthew 17, 1 to 13. Matthew writes, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Back when I was in high school, I had an opportunity to travel with my dad to Brazil. I was hoping to pursue a degree in international business at the time. I saw my dad go overseas for business pretty frequently when I was growing up, and at the time, I thought that was pretty cool, and so I began to plan out how I could make that my career. I took every foreign language class that my high school offered. I even started an internship with the Latin American region of my dad's company. My dad, of course, took notice of all this, and so on one occasion, as he saw he was going to take another trip overseas, this time to Brazil, he asked me if I'd go along, like to go along. And as you can imagine, I jumped at the opportunity. I had never been on a plane before, much less traveled outside the country. I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for me to see just how exciting and fun a career an international business would be. So I got my first passport and in August of that year packed my bags and boarded a flight to Brazil with my dad. It was an overnight flight. We arrived in Sao Paulo early in the morning and then immediately hopped in a car and drove to the city of Sorcaba. Once there, we went straight to the manufacturing plant that my dad had been sent to check out where I sat in a meeting for I'm not even sure how long because I fell asleep partway through And I don't really know how long I was out for. But the trip was relatively fun. We were there for two weeks, and we spent the weekend in between staying at a hotel on the beach in Rio de Janeiro. We got some sightseeing in there. We shopped for some souvenirs. We walked along the beach. I went out. I got to uh, go out to a couple of business uh, business dinners with my dad, and I even got to go on some tours of the manufacturing facilities that he came to visit. And overall, I got a pretty good glimpse of you know, some of the more enjoyable aspects of international business. But overall, I was actually kind of bored. I learned pretty quickly that international business isn't as glamorous as I thought it was. All it really meant was sitting in a meeting room in a different country, jet-lagged and tired, working long hours into the night, because after all, there's a reason why a company is investing a lot of money to send one of their employees overseas. It's because there's stuff to get done. Maybe it means a nice dinner or two, but it's with strangers, and you're exhausted, so it's really not that enjoyable anyways. Then at the end of the day, you get to return to your hotel room, which is pretty much like every other hotel room you've ever been in, alone, where where even if you wanted to watch TV, you can't understand it because it's in a language that you don't speak. I got homesick faster than I expected. I wanted to be home with family and friends. I wanted to be around familiar things again. I mean, as much as I enjoyed trying all these different kinds of food, I kept craving Pizza Hut for some reason. 
and I couldn't order it. And by the time we got home, I was done. I was ready to be, ready to be back. When we, when we arrived back in Chicago at the end of that second week, we ran into one of my co-workers from the Latin American region from my dad's company at the baggage claim. She was pretty well acquainted with international travel. I'd often walked past her office during the week to see it empty as she was away in some other country. I didn't realize that she had been in Brazil at the same time as us, but apparently she happened to take the same flight home. We got to talking, and as I talked, I discovered that the trip marked her 14th trip to Brazil that year in eight months, and that was just Brazil. She was involved in several different manufacturing operations, been to several different other countries as well. And I knew right then and there, I didn't want to major in international business anymore. That was not the career path for me. That trip changed my life. And it actually changed my, my life in ways that were even deeper than I realized at the time. Sure, I came away from that trip realizing that business travel was not all that it cracked up to be. I came away looking for a new career, something that would keep me a little closer to friends and family. But more importantly, I actually came away with an entirely different perspective on life. My dad and I spent the weekend in this five-star hotel on Copacabana Beach with these beautiful views overlooking the ocean. But along the way, we had traveled through the shanty towns of Sao Paulo and Rio de, Rio de Janeiro to get there. Like I said, I never left the country before I went on that trip, and so I'd never seen anything like that before. When we were driving to the airport in Sao Paulo to board our flight to Rio, I remember looking out the window and for miles and miles passing by homes that were made of nothing more than plywood and corrugated aluminum. Here was a city of more than 20 million people, as big as New York, and it seemed that the vast, vast majority of these people lived in abject poverty. I wasn't prepared for that. And that experience changed me. I came back realizing in a way that I hadn't known before just how fortunate I was to be born in the family I grew up in. In fact, I actually came back with a lot of questions about what to make of that. Like, I, like it almost felt wrong. I mean, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, but I couldn't understand how I could have just been given so much opportunity in life when others didn't have that. I mean, I hadn't done anything to earn where I was. It was just handed to me. It didn't seem fair. Over time, my priorities started to shift. Whereas before, I just wanted to make money and have fun experiences, more and more gradually, I wanted to see something else come out of my life. That started to change. Increasingly, I wanted to spend my life helping others. And as I wrestled through what that really meant, to help other people, and as I simply struggled to try to understand concepts like fairness, like, like why did I think that what I had been given was unfair, and what did fair look like, and why did I expect it, those questions eventually led me to Christianity. The Bible I saw was the only thing that had consistent logical questions to these issues I was wrestling with. It explained things. And as I tried to find answers in the Scripture more and more, God eventually used that to bring me to repentance and faith as well. Now, that was a process that took several years, five years to be exact. But at the same time, the seeds that would eventually mature into a saving faith in Jesus Christ were planted, some of them, on that trip to Brazil. That trip changed me. It made me a different person. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever witnessed something so overwhelming that it turned you into a different person? Have you perhaps ever experienced something so impactful that even years later you're still dealing with the repercussions of it? Like you're still trying to understand it and it just keeps changing who you are. Well, that's the kind of event that we read about just a moment ago in Matthew 17. The transfiguration, this event where Jesus is suddenly transformed so that his disciples can witness his glory for a few fleeting moments, that event forever changed these three disciples who got to witness it. They never forgot this. In fact, Peter even alludes to this miracle as he's anticipating his death in his second epistle. In other words, as Peter nears the end of his life, this is the moment 
that he's still looking back on. It continues to eclipse his memory. It's what he's thinking about as he prepares to die. It's still shaping the trajectory of his life and ministry. And when you understand what's taking place here, you can see why. It wasn't just Jesus' appearance that was transformed here. The disciples' understanding of who Jesus was and what that meant for them, that was transformed here as well. These disciples went up onto this mountain thinking one thing about Jesus, and after they witnessed this transfiguration, they came back down with a realization so powerful, so monumental, that Jesus even told them to tell no one what they saw until after He was raised from the dead. That includes the rest of His disciples. That is how earth-shattering this revelation about Jesus is. It's so revolutionary that Jesus apparently thinks that the rest of the disciples aren't even ready to receive it at this time. It's only after He's been raised from the dead that they're going to be able to hear from Peter, James, and John about what happened on this mountain. Accept it and understand what it means. So what's going on here? What does this event reveal about Jesus and how did it change these disciples? So those are are the questions I want to answer for you this morning. And I want to answer them in two parts. This This passage basically breaks down into two sections. Matthew describes the transfiguration in verses 1 through 8, and then he describes the aftermath in verses 9 to 13. And that's how I want to approach this passage as well. First, we see the revelation in verses 1 through 8. That's where the disciples come to discover this life altering information about Jesus. And then we see the transformation in verses 9 to 13. That's where we'll see the impact of this revelation on the disciples. Of course, once we're done with that, we'll have a clear idea of how the transfiguration should continue to affect us today. Let's go ahead and begin first with the revelation. Once again, that takes place in verses 1 through 8. Matthew says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So six days after our last encounter with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus takes three of his disciples and he leads them up onto this high mountain. We don't know what mountain this is exactly. In our last couple of encounters, it would appear that Jesus was in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon, which had an elevation of over 9,000 feet, is the tallest mountain in Israel, uh, would have been nearby. There doesn't appear to be any particular reason why Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. In particular, perhaps this is why. Perhaps Jesus brought them to the foot of Mount Hermon for this specific moment. Tradition says that the site is Mount Tabor to the south, near Nazareth. And there are some really interesting implications to this event, if that is the case. But the truth of the matter is that we just really don't know. We can't be sure where this happened. And Matthew certainly doesn't try to tell us. The location, at least in his eyes, is apparently irrelevant. It's simply a high mountain. Likewise, Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us why Jesus took only these three disciples. We know from the rest of the Gospels that these three disciples seem to be particularly close to Jesus. He separates them out from the rest on more than one occasion, shows them things he doesn't show the rest on more than one occasion. And we can see in verse 9 that he isn't going to want this vision shared with the rest of the disciples. So we can conclude that this vision is something that he only wants his inner circle to see. But Matthew doesn't tell us why or for what purpose that is. I think we can get a pretty good guess by the end of the story, but it's not as if there's anything in the preceding context that sets us up for this. 
I mean, Peter, he has just made a declaration of faith in Jesus as a representative for the rest of the disciples. Jesus tells Peter that he's going to build his church upon the witness of Peter and the disciples, but nothing was said of James and John in those passages specifically. At this point in the story, we only know that Jesus pulled these disciples aside, brought them up to the, uh, to the top of this undisclosed mountain, and that this all occurred, quote, after six days. In other words, it's been about a week since the preceding confrontation between Jesus and Peter. So we're fresh off of Jesus explaining His death and resurrection to the disciples for the first time. We are fresh off Peter's attempt to correct Jesus. And Jesus' strong rebuke of Peter. Likewise, Jesus challenged the disciples to pick up their cross and follow Him. And to do so in light of the fact that the Son of Man will come with His angels to judge mankind. That just happened. Jesus' prediction that some of those standing before Him would see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom before they died. That too, importantly enough, has just happened. And we're supposed to know this. Matthew draws attention to the timing here, saying that this all occurred six days later. So he wants us to connect these two events. We're supposed to see the transfiguration in light of the events that just happened in Matthew 16. Why that's important we'll see by the end of the story, but suffice to say for the moment the stage has been set for us. The transfiguration is going to clarify some things that we saw in Matthew 16. And this scene, by the way, is actually already hearkening back to the Exodus at this point. In verse 1, we have Jesus taking some of His disciples up to this mountain after a period of six days. He leaves the rest behind at the foot of the mountain. This seems to be a loose allusion to the events at Sinai. In Exodus 24, when God ratifies the Mosaic Covenant with the people of Israel, He tells Moses to come with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, along with 70 of the elders of the people, and to eat and worship at a distance. The Scripture says that during that meal, quote, they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. They beheld God and ate and drank. Six days later, Moses then traveled up the mountain, apparently with Joshua in tow, to receive the stone tablets laid out uh, that laid out the terms of the covenant. Again, it's a pretty loose allusion, but perhaps Matthew is hinting at this in verse 1 because the connection between the transfiguration and Sinai is about to get significantly stronger. Jesus takes these three disciples up the mountain, and then Matthew says, verse 2, that He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. The word for transfigured is the word metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. When a caterpillar is changed into a butterfly, we call the process metamorphosis. That's the idea here. As one commentator explains, the word connotes not just a change externally visible, but one that proceeds from the inside and changes the whole person. The point is that Jesus is radically changed. He's suddenly transformed before the eyes of His disciples. And it's not just a superficial transformation. It's not just on the outside. It's one that is proceeding from the inside of Jesus. And after he is transformed, he's standing there with this incredibly brilliant light shining out from him. So his external form hasn't changed. Matthew notes, of course, that he still has a face. Though Luke tells us that even the appearance of his face was altered. He's still wearing clothes. Mark even adds the detail that his clothes became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So it's not as if Jesus becomes something other than human in this moment. He's still a man. But he's transformed. Like from the inside out, changed. And if I could put it this way, it's as if Jesus for a moment peels back the veil that shielded His glory and for a moment stood there before His disciples glorified. This is still the man Jesus. But His heavenly glory is yet unveiled, emanating from His person. And He's standing there like this and next to Him are Moses and Elijah 
who according to Luke are also glorified. And he's talking to them. Matthew doesn't tell us what he's talking with them about. Luke tells us that he was speaking with them about his departure, literally his exodus in the Greek, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So according to Luke, they're speaking about Jesus' suffering, His death, His resurrection. Matthew doesn't give us that detail. He simply says that Jesus was speaking with these two men. And Peter's overwhelmed by this. He tells Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. And then he offers to construct three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now we can speculate as to why Peter said this. And there appears to be something that was motivating Peter's thinking. But again, Matthew doesn't really tell us what Peter was thinking or even necessarily hint as to what he was thinking about. In fact, Mark tells us that Peter said this, quote, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So this isn't to say that Peter didn't have something in mind when he said this. Clearly there was a reason why he offered this particular option to build the three tents, given what he's seeing take place in front of him. But at the same time, he hasn't exactly thought this through. Luke even said uh, that, this, he, that he said this, quote, uh, not knowing what he said. So Peter has an idea, but again, it's not very well thought out. He's just kind of blurting out the first thing that comes into his head without really thinking about the implications of what he's saying. Some people are like this. Even when they don't know what to say, they'll say something. A pause happens in the conversation that makes them uncomfortable, and they'll just start blurting stuff out. They're uncomfortable saying nothing. Peter is apparently one of those guys. He's a take-action guy. He's the sort of guy that shoots first and asks questions later. And that would seem to be part of the reason why Jesus loved Peter so much. It's part of what made Peter such a great student and a natural leader. He acted, but at the same time, it could also get Peter in trouble from time to time. And that's what you see here. Peter blurts this reaction out, and then again, just like we saw in the last passage, before Peter can even finish explaining what he's thinking, He's cut off by God. Peter's speaking, and as he's speaking, this bright cloud comes and envelops the disciples, which would be more than a little frightening if you ask me. But not only that, once the cloud envelops the disciples, there's this voice that comes from the midst of the cloud, and it thunders, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So if the disciples weren't terrified enough before, now they're utterly mortified. In fact, now even Peter is rendered speechless. They fall under their faces in abject terror. They're rendered completely silent, completely immobile. They can't move for fear of what's going on around them. I mean, really, they're doing their best disappearing act. They're on the ground, clutching earth, their faces buried down in the dirt. They're completely exposed in this moment, and they're diving for the closest refuge which they can find, which unfortunately for them is the open ground. There's nothing cavalier about their attitude anymore. Peter isn't saying, it's good to be here now. No, now, if anything, they want to get out of there. They don't want to even lift their heads to see what's going on around them. They want to be somewhere else. In all likelihood, they probably even believe their life is in danger. They're in the presence of God, and Peter just offended him. They're bracing themselves for wrath. The posture that they, th- that they take here, this is one of utter submission. It's a plea for mercy. And then, just like that, they feel a hand gently touching them. And the next voice they hear, it's not the voice thundering from the cloud, but the voice of Jesus. And He's saying to them, Rise, have no fear. They're pleading for mercy on the ground, and their plea is answered. They experience not wrath, but compassion. Jesus says, don't worry, you're going to be okay. You can get up now. And they look around, and everything's back to normal. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud is gone. It's just Jesus standing there with them on the mountaintop. This is an absolutely stunning scene. 
I mean, just from the description of what's happening here, you can see why it would have made an impression on these disciples. This entire scene, I mean, Jesus' sudden transformation, His brilliant glory, the presence of Moses and Elijah, the cloud and the voice from heaven, every aspect of it is breathtaking. But if we're going to understand how this event changed the disciples, then we have to know the meaning of this event. The transfiguration is more than just a spectacle. It was meant to do more than just simply shock and awe. It was meant to communicate a very powerful message to these three disciples. And it's that message really more than anything else that changed these men. If I could put it this way, the spectacle of this event seared the event on the disciples' memory. But it's the message of the event that changed them, that transformed them. And lucky for us, that message isn't too hard to understand because it's communicated in this whole exchange with Peter. Peter, you will remember, has been the central figure in Jesus' interaction with the disciples since all the way back in verse 16 of chapter 16. There, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter was the one who spoke up, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was that declaration that then prompted Jesus to begin to speak about His death and resurrection. The remnant upon which Jesus would build His church had been established. The witness to the kingdom that would would carry this message out into the world. That has been established. And that prompts Jesus to turn His attention to the next phase of His ministry. And He begins to prepare His disciples for that phase by telling them for the very first time about His death and resurrection. Once again, as Jesus started to tell them about this, Peter was the one who spoke up. Jesus was showing the disciples what was about to happen to him. He was probably reasoning with them from the Scriptures, showing them that the Old Testament predicted the suffering of the Messiah. Peter thinks Jesus is mistaken, and so he pulls Jesus aside, and if you recall, he begins to rebuke him. Like there's a whole thought-out argument that Peter has in mind. He starts telling Jesus that he's wrong, that these things don't happen to the Christ. Jesus then turns and publicly rebukes Peter calls him Satan, actually, and then turns and tells the disciples that he's not the only one that will suffer, but all of them as well. And he tells them that they had better embrace that role, because when he does return with power and glory after his suffering, he will judge men by whether or not they followed him. Now, six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain, discloses his glory, And again, Peter starts talking. Can you see where this is going? Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Apparently, he even told the rest of the disciples as much later on. That kind of cracks me up. Because the only way that Mark and Luke can know that Peter spoke without thinking is if Peter himself related that he didn't know what he was talking about later on. It's kind of funny to think about that, like him describing that. So Peter doesn't know what he's talking about, and he knows that. He's confused and he's scared. But that doesn't stop him from talking. He offers to build these tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So apparently Peter thinks that these other two are going to stay there. That's why you build a tent. It's because they're going to stick around. That's what Peter thinks. Why is Peter thinking that in this moment? Peter appears to be an excellent student. Maybe he's just excited about the prospect of learning from Moses and Elijah in addition to to Jesus. More than likely, though, I think you discover the answer down in verse 10. Where at the conclusion of this, the disciples are asking Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's a question that goes back to Malachi 4, where God said that he would send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord to turn the hearts of Israel to repentance so that God would not destroy Israel along with the rest of the nations of the earth. I think the fact that they're asking this question after they see a Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration tells you what Peter is thinking. He's wanting to build a tent. Because he thinks Elijah and Moses are here to stay. 
He thinks they're here to help usher in the day of the Lord. In other words, he thinks that judgment is at hand. I mean, after all, Jesus just said that some of us wouldn't taste death before we saw the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Now, six days later, here's Jesus glorified. And here's Elijah and Moses with him. This is it. The kingdom is at hand. That's what Peter is thinking. Now, again, Peter's not really thinking very clearly in this moment, because if he was, then he would have remembered what Jesus also said about his suffering and his death. And he would have realized that this vision could not have possibly meant that the kingdom had arrived. But again, he's scared, and he's confused, and he, feel he, needs, he feels like he needs to act. And so he blurts out the first thing that comes into his head before he can even think it through. This was the problem with Peter. He had come to realize who Jesus was, but he hadn't yet made the connection with how that truth should affect him. He tried to correct Jesus in our last passage, and now here he is again, trying to make suggestions about the next step in God's plan for Jesus, instead of listening to Jesus explain the vision to him. So God the Father then steps in and clarifies this point by declaring, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. In other words, be quiet, Peter. Close your mouth. Do you know who this is in front of you? This is my Son. Don't you get it? Stop talking and start listening. That's really the meaning of the transfiguration. This was a message that the disciples were to take home with them. You look at this vision where Jesus is standing there glorified with light emanating out of him and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And you know what the significance of that is? A lot of times it's said that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So it's like they're serving as witnesses to Jesus. It's said that they represent the fact that the law and the prophets testify to Jesus. That doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense though when you think about it. After all, Elijah didn't write any of the books written by the prophets. If the point was to demonstrate that the law and the prophets testified to Jesus, then you would expect an actual writing prophet there, someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah, maybe Ezekiel. But if that's not the point, then what is it? Well, think about it for a second. What might Moses and Elijah share in common? Do you know? Can you think of it? The answers are in Exodus 34 and 1 Kings 19. Both Moses and Elijah witnessed the glory of the Lord at Mount Sinai. Now, it's called Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19, but that's just a different name for Mount Sinai. These men are the two Old Testament figures who witnessed the glory of the Lord at the mountain where God delivered His law to the people of Israel. So Jesus leads his disciples up onto this mountain in this scene that echoes the Exodus, and there he is transfigured. Glory is emanating from his body. There's this brilliant cloud of light all around, but the cloud isn't lighting up Jesus, right? The glory is coming from him. And here he is speaking with Moses and Elijah. Can you see what's happening here? There's definitely a repeat of Sinai going on, but Jesus isn't Moses. And he isn't Elijah. No, he's the Lord who spoke to Moses and Elijah from the cloud. That's what the transfiguration is a picture of. It reveals Jesus' identity to the disciples. It demonstrates that Jesus is, in fact, God. And in revealing this point, it demonstrates that Jesus is the authority over the Scriptures. After all, He's the one who instructs Moses and Elijah. That's what Moses and Elijah are doing here. They're speaking with Jesus, but not as peers. Rather, the picture is that of them speaking to Yahweh, who in this instance is revealed to be no less than Jesus Himself. So then, can you see how misguided Peter's statement truly is. Here's this amazing display of the authority of Jesus to explain and interpret the Scriptures. This is a sign that was meant to reassure the disciples about the instruction 
that He just delivered to them back in our last passage concerning His death and resurrection. It's meant to reassure them that what He said there is accurate. Remember, Peter started to argue with Jesus over that point. He thought Jesus was way off. This vision should reassure these disciples that Jesus' interpretation was not misguided. He possessed the authority to declare this point, that He would suffer and die and be resurrected again, that that's what the Old Testament predicted. He knew what He was talking about. But then in the middle of this whole thing, Peter blurts out this plan that still assumes he's not going to suffer. Intentional or not, he's basically ignoring what Jesus has taught him about his suffering and death. In other words, Peter is completely missing the point. The message of this vision is going right over his head. And so God then makes his point crystal clear with his voice booming from the midst of the cloud, this is my son. Listen to him. And look at the result. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus tells them not to repeat the vision that they saw until he's been raised from the dead, and you can understand why that is. After all, this vision demonstrates Jesus' divine identity more clearly than perhaps any other event in his ministry. It indicates that he is the same Yahweh who spoke to Moses and Elijah. In the minds of the average Israelite, this suggestion was blasphemy. So to repeat this vision publicly would almost certainly invite an attack from Israel's religious leaders prematurely. In fact, it would appear that this concept is so shocking that Jesus doesn't even think the rest of the disciples are ready to accept it just yet. And I say this because not even they are allowed to know about this event until after the resurrection. So after the resurrection, he's okay with letting them know about it, but not until that point. And if you ask yourself why this would be, why it's okay then, but not now, the most logical answer seems to be that the resurrection would help explain this event to them. Like if they were to witness or hear about the transfiguration now, it would be a stumbling block for them. Jesus doesn't want them to know yet. After the resurrection, it will be different. Once they see Jesus raised with power from the dead, they will be able to hear about this event and understand the meaning of it. But until then, it would just be a stumbling block, even for some of his own disciples. That's how shocking this idea really is. So you can see why Jesus would issue this warning. But what's notable is that as Jesus issues this warning, he reaffirms once again that he will suffer and die. He tells them this is going to happen, and he brings it up again. And now look at the disciples' reaction this time. They ask him, So then, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Can you catch what's happening here? They're confused. The scriptures said that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And the reason why he would come first was because he would lead Israel to repentance before the day of the Lord. The disciples think that prediction is incompatible with the idea of a suffering Messiah. If Elijah is bringing Israel to repentance, then Israel isn't rejecting the Messiah. For Israel to reject the Messiah, they would have to still be unrepentant. So if the Christ is going to be rejected by the nation's religious leaders, which is a concept that these disciples are now willing to accept, then what does that mean about this Elijah prophecy? Were the scribes mistaken? Did that prophecy mean something else? And if not, then how does this work? How can the Christ be rejected and Elijah come first and bring repentance to Israel? You understand they're bumping up against this confusing concept. But now, and this is so important, but now they're asking questions. 
instead of trying to propose answers. The lesson has been learned. They're ready now for Jesus to instruct them about God's plan. Jesus answers in verses 11 and 12, and he answers in two parts. He tells them first, Elijah does come. And listen here, he says, he does come, and he will restore all things. In other words, the scribes didn't misunderstand the scripture. The interpretation is accurate. Elijah does come, as predicted, and he will restore all things. Note the tense here, by the way, it's future. Jesus says this is going to happen. It's going to happen in the future. So the expectation is right. Elijah does come before the day of the Lord. Then Jesus takes his answer a step further in verse 12, saying, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased. And it says in verse 13 that the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, I've explained this point back in Matthew 11, so I'm not going to get in a lot of depth here right now, but Jesus already explained back in Matthew 11, that John was a potential fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. He was not necessarily the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. In fact, when the scribes and Pharisees asked John in John 1, Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. He was not necessarily the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy, but he was potentially the fulfillment of it. According to Luke 1, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to, quote, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And for this reason, Jesus said in Matthew 11 that if the people were willing to accept the kingdom he offered, then John is Elijah who is to come. But as Jesus points out here, that's not what happened. Israel didn't heed John's call to repentance. Instead, he was imprisoned. And by this point in the gospel, he's dead beheaded at the hands of an immoral Idumean tetrarch. Combined, these responses answer two different questions for Jesus' disciples. First, these responses answer how it's possible for the Elijah to suffer when Elijah comes first. It's possible if Elijah himself is rejected. When Israel rejects Elijah's message, then it makes sense that they will reject the Lord that he introduced as well. Second, these answers explain to the disciples where they are in God's unfolding plan of salvation. It's interesting, in Mark, uh, Jesus' answer reads like this. This is how Mark relays Jesus' answer. He says, uh, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah uh, has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus says, Elijah does come to restore all things. But then at the same time, how does the scripture also say that the Messiah will be rejected? His point is that the Old Testament said both these things. And so the two concepts somehow had to be compatible. And then he goes on to show how that tension is resolved with Israel's rejection of John. There was this expectation in Israel that the Messiah would come once to conquer the earth. The disciples are trying to figure out how to reconcile that concept with the idea of a suffering Messiah. They're trying to figure out how these prophecies that clearly spoke of Israel's repentance, triumph, and restoration go along with what Jesus is saying about his rejection and death. And what Jesus is doing here is pulling these concepts apart so that the disciples can understand these things in light, of two, in light of two comings. The Messiah does not just come once, but twice. Yes, Elijah does come first. And he does restore all things. But the Messiah will be rejected as well. And so there always had to be two. There had to be one like John, who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, but suffers rejection along with the Messiah. And then there had to be another as well who will come and restore all things. In other words, the disciples don't have to abandon the prospect that Israel will repent and experience restoration and triumph. They don't have to trade in their expectation for a triumphant Messiah in exchange for a rejected one, which is what they're starting to consider when they ask this question. 
They just need to readjust their understanding of the order of things. Jesus will be triumphant. Everything that they expected of the Messiah, that would happen. It's just that Jesus had to suffer first. Their expectation isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. There's more to the story than what they saw before. The result of this, of course, is that the disciples are now leaving this mountain with an increased understanding of God's plan for the Christ. They're not going to keep arguing with Jesus about his suffering. In fact, in just a few verses, Jesus will remind his disciples of his crucifixion again. And that time, they won't respond by arguing with Jesus' prediction, and they won't even respond by asking him questions about it. Instead, they'll just be distressed over it. Jesus mentions his suffering again, and realizing that this is going to happen, they're stressed out about it. That's the change that takes place in the disciples moving forward. They become teachable, like really teachable in this moment. They stop trying to treat Jesus like he's just an especially wise teacher, and they start treating him like the divine being that he is. And so they start listening. And because they start listening, they start learning. And that's going to be uh, uh, really important for the next phase of Jesus' ministry because this next six months of Jesus' ministry, the last six months of His ministry, becomes increasingly focused on these disciples. Jesus is about to die, and He knows it. And so He knows that He needs to train up and establish this foundation before He's gone. And there's a lot that He has to tell them to prepare them for life after the resurrection. And so this moment here is really very crucial because it prepares the very core of the disciples. It prepares the three men who will help lead the rest of the twelve in the very early stages of the church. And so it helps prepares them to receive this critical instruction that Jesus is going to give down the backstretch of his ministry. And so with this in mind, let me close by asking you this. Are you teachable? Do you listen to Jesus, or do you try to instruct Him? Now, I know probably all of you would say, oh no, I listen to Him, because that's what we're supposed to say. But do you? Do you really? There are lots of ways that we can argue with Jesus without actually realizing it. I mean, if you look at what Peter is doing in this story, he probably doesn't think he's arguing with Jesus when he suggests that he build three tents. In his mind, he probably thinks that that's what Jesus wants him to do. But at the same time, he's making the suggestion before he even really realizes what he is suggesting. He's uncomfortable with the confusion. He's eager to answer the situation. And so he offers up a suggestion before he truly understands what's going on. And the result is that in the process, he actually rejects everything that Jesus taught him just six days ago. It isn't hard to contend with Jesus. You just have to act in ignorance. You just have to start speaking before you really know what you're talking about. Think to yourself, God would surely want this, or God is surely like this, without consulting His Word. And then see if that's what he actually said. And you'll end up just like Peter. And Christians do this all the time. I mean, how many Bible studies have you been to in your life where some type of application question is asked? Maybe even a theological question is asked. Maybe there's a scripture quoted, like 1 John 4, 16, where it says that God is love. And then the question is thrown out there. So what do you think? What does this passage tell us about God if it says that God is love? And then people start to say, well, if God is love, then... And there's all these follow-up answers that where people are talking about their definition of love and then applying it back to God without any sort of Scripture to back up what they're saying because they assume that God shares their definition of love. But it really should be the other way around. If the Scripture says that God is love, then the right approach is not to begin by asking, what does this tell us about God? But rather by asking, what does this tell us about love? God is love. That means that if we're to understand love, then we'll find its definition in God. So what does that look like? You don't start with your own definition of things and then reason your way up to God. 
That's how you make an idol. You instead start with God and reason your way down from there to discover how to define the world around you. Only then can we understand what the Scripture means when it says things like God is love. But that's not how many Christians do things. And I just use the Bible study scenario as an example that I think most of us can identify with. We do this in a lot of different ways. Take suffering, for example. We already talked about this when we looked at the last passage, but we do this all the time with suffering. God will bring some kind of affliction into our lives. And if we don't outright say it, we'll at least think God has forsaken me or God is punishing me. No, the scriptures say that God causes all things to come together for good for his children. He's not forsaken you. The scriptures also say that suffering and affliction are instruments that God uses to sanctify his children, to teach them to find their joy and contentment in him. It may not necessarily be as a result of some sort of disobedience. And yet we'll assume that we already know what God is intending to work out for us instead of simply trusting him, obeying him, and then patiently looking to be instructed by the outcome. So ask yourself this question. Am I teachable? Do I listen to Jesus Or do I try to instruct him, perhaps without even realizing it? And then as you ask yourself that question, consider what we've seen over the past couple of passages. Consider whether or not you've set your mind on heavenly things or earthly things. We saw in our last passage, setting your mind on the things of man rather than the things of God, that will get in the way of clearly seeing Christ and his purposes. So consider that. And then consider what happens here on this mountain. Think of how Peter speaks before listening. And ask yourself, in my relationship with God, do I speak or act out of ignorance? Or do I wait to be instructed by Him before I respond? And as you consider those two points, think about the transfiguration. Allow the glory of Christ here to remind you of what's coming when the Son of Man returns in glory with His angels. And let it redirect your focus onto eternal things. Let the power and authority of Christ on display in this moment as He instructs two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Let that humble you to the point that you're ready to be silent and listen to Jesus, to the point that you're ready to open up His Word for instruction instead of assuming that you already have the answer. And do this so that like these disciples, you can grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord. Let's pray.